uh, we're going to be starting a series uh, through the book of James, and it's going to be awesome. And so, um, has anyone ever read the book of James before? Anyone ever read it? It's just five chapters, uh, but it's five chapters that are jam-packed full of amazing uh, things. Turn to James chapter one. Uh, the title of the message today uh, is just called Through It All. Through It All. And we're going we're gonna to look at today the first eight verses here in the book of James. Uh, but I just want to give you guys a little, uh, just what, what is this? This is the book of James. And I, wanna, I want you to know kind of what to expect uh, in this letter. But in this letter from James uh, to who we're going to see in a second, uh, there's so many different encouragements and exhortations. What does that mean? It means that sometimes James is kind of lighthearted. But sometimes he's very strong in what he is saying. And it's extremely convicting, this book. Um, and it really brings the reality of the Christian faith into every different aspect of life, into so many different uh, aspects of everyday life. Like what? Well, today we're going to look at uh, trials and hard times, but later on we'll look at uh, prayer and temptation. Uh, the book also talks about social status, meaning those who are rich and those who are poor. It talks about people showing favoritism, judging others, uh, how we talk to one another. It even talks about uh, people who are sick and what should they do. Um, it's awesome. In this book, uh, but throughout this whole book, there's so many different aspects and elements that it hits. But throughout this whole book, you're going to see one common theme. And it's going to bring in the, the theme of faith into every aspect of life, whether it's talking to one another, whether it's judging one another, and, and how we are to deal with that. It and brings faith into every aspect. You see, you and I, we're not to compartmentalize our life. What does that mean? It means that we're not to have who we are on Sundays, and then we get home, and then we have who we are on Sunday nights at home, and then during the week, we have who we are with our friends, and then when we're at school, then we're a little bit different. You see, our faith is to be in every aspect of our life. There should be no different compartments that we can go to. You see, in this book, it's going to drive us to a faith that is active, not passive. You see, our Christian faith is not something that should be passive. It should call us into action, and we're going to see this book do that very thing. Uh, there's a, a commentary. It's called the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and they would describe this book as refreshingly practical. That the different things that we're going to learn together over the next few months and talk about in this book, you're going to be able to take them and you're going to be able to apply them. But that's up to you. But it is practical. And so we see the book of James. But if you look, everyone look at their Bibles and look at James chapter 1. But if you look at the very top, some of your Bibles might say uh, the epistle of James. What Bibles, what Bibles that you guys have say that? The epistle of James. Does anyone know what an epistle is? Yeah. So it's just a letter, right? It's just a fancy word for, the let, for a letter. And so uh, when it says the epistle of James, it's just the letter of James. And so who is the author? James, right? That's why it's called the book of James. But look at verse one with me, and we'll look at the author, and we'll look at the reader, okay? So James chapter one, verse one, that's, we're just gonna look at the first verse. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And he says, greetings. And so we... We get two big things here. We know who is writing, and we know who, it, who it's going to. And so we see the author, right? It's James. But uh, James who? Who is this 
guy James. Well, in the book of Bible, in the book of Bible, <laughs> in the Bible, we see James, uh, different, a few different James, four to be exactly within the New Testament. So which one is this? Well, uh, we know that this James, who writes this letter, is actually the half-brother of Jesus. Meaning, what does it mean when you have a half-brother or half-sister, half-sibling? means one of the parents are the same, right? And so which one of the same parents did Jesus have that James had as well? Mary, right? Because, you know, Jesus and virgin birth and all that. And so James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? This is speaking of Jesus. And here we get a few names of his brothers. This is, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And so we know from the Bible, from the Gospels, that Jesus actually had half-brothers. He had half-sisters, meaning they were siblings and they were in the family. Yet, we know from John chapter 7, verse 5, that his, even his own brothers did not believe in him. That when his brothers... Uh, were here and, and Jesus was here on earth with them, that he, they didn't believe in him. That growing up, uh, they didn't believe him to be uh, the Messiah. But we see that James uh, has a change of heart because we see in the book of Acts that he actually becomes uh, not only a believer, but he actually becomes the head uh, guy, the, the guy in charge at the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And so now he's not only a believer, uh, but he's someone who is faithfully in leadership. It's awesome. And what does it describe James as? Look at verse one. This is a bond servant. This is just a willing slave. This is someone who's choosing to follow Jesus and to put himself in this position. It's a choice that he didn't have to, but that he decided. And so we see uh, James, right? He's, this is who is writing the letter, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who was in charge of the church in Jerusalem. But then we see the reader. Who, who is this sent to? If a letter is sent, it's got to be sent to someone, right? And so look at verse 1. It says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, who do you think it's talking about when it says the 12 tribes? What do you guys think? What do 12 tribes remind you of? Yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's writing to Jewish believers, right? Because he describes them as the 12 tribes, but then he says, but those who are scattered abroad. You see, you think about it. Think about when Jesus died and he ascended back into heaven. Now there's all these people that believe in Jesus, but they were once Jews. And so now they're still Jews, but they're here in Jerusalem. But there's some Jews that didn't believe in Jesus, obviously, right? They killed him. And so now there's extreme persecution on the people there in Jerusalem. And so there's all this different persecution and people uh, attacking them. and, And they are now uprooted from their home and they're sent out to go try to find a home elsewhere. And so this is who he's writing to, people that were once in Jerusalem, they're Jews, but now they believe in Jesus, but now they're sent away. You see, they had to scatter or disperse. They were banished from the land. They had to go find somewhere else to go. And so this is who James is writing to. And we're going to see in this letter that uh, unlike the letters of Paul, I don't know if you've ever read any letters that Paul wrote, but they're always very personal. He talks about them as uh, dear children and how he's their father, and there's this personal tone to them. But we're going to see here, there's not really that personal tone. I think because it's so broad, right? It's written to all, anyone who is a Jew who believes in Jesus that used to be in Jerusalem. It's kind of a broad category. Unlike Paul, he typically wrote to specific churches, right? The, the church in Colossae, or the church in Corinth, or uh, certain people, right? Timothy, or, 
or um, the different people that he wrote to. But we're going to see that though this isn't a personal letter in that way, it's going to get really personal between you and me. That God is going to speak to us in a very personal way through this letter. That it's, there's going to be truths that, that we talk about that are going to hit you right in between the eye. And you're going to have to choose whether you're going to do God's word or you're just going to hear it. And some of you, you're going to take what you learn here and you're going to go home and you're going to apply this and do this. And some of you, though, will just be hearers. That you'll come in and out Sunday after Sunday and, and you'll just hear what I have to say. But there is an amazing blessing when you do God's word. And so as we come to it today, uh, let's pray. God, we come before you and we thank you that we get to read your Bible and we get to come here and learn. And we so ask that you would meet us here in this place. God, we desire that, that you would be in every aspect of our life. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes uh, we, get, we just get off track, Lord. But today that you would put us on the right track, Lord, that when the things of life do come and hard times come as you promised they would, Lord, would we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we give you this time, invite you here, and ask that you would uh, just teach us and, and be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let's look at this first part of what James has to say, right? The title of the message today is Through It All. And we're going to see this first, the first three verses that we'll look at, right? We looked at the first one and talked about uh, the writer James. It talked about who was receiving the letter, the, the 12 different tribes of Israel, these people who, who believe in Jesus but were once following the Jewish faith. And so now we see within verses 2, 3, and 4, uh, we're going to see that we are to trust him through it all. All right, look at verse 2 with me. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be complete, sorry, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, James does not hold back. He fires away. He comes in guns blazing, and he's ready to just encourage. He's ready, ready to give instruction. And what's the first instruction that we see here? Well, this first section deals with the subject of trials, of difficult times of testing. And we see here that we see in verse 2, we see the direction. We see the direction in verse 2 that, that James gives, and he says that we are to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. But what is a trial? Does anyone know? What is a trial? Yeah. Hard times? Totally. Anyone else want to give it a shot? A trial is like, let's say that your grandfather is really close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, death can be a trial. Yep. Totally. There's different examples, right? And we'll look at that in a second. But this trial, it's, it's a hard time. It's when death comes. It's when different things come into our life. And it's a time of testing, though. It is a time of testing. It's putting us to the test. I don't know if you guys know how they make cars. Uh, but before a car can be massively produced and put on the lot for you and your parents to buy, that there is an insane amount of tests that it has to go through, right? You've seen, I'm sure, on the commercials when they put the, the crash dummies in the car and then they slam it against the wall and they want to see what it can do. They want to see, it, it, can it last? These seatbelts, will they work? And they're testing the vehicle, right? That's a similar kind of word. Or what about when a, a young bird, when it... Uh, right? It's, uh, 
used to having its mom feed its, uh, itself, but now it has to go and find food on its own. And so it gets on the corner of the, the nest and it has to what? As it tests its wings. And so it jumps and we're going to see kind of what that bird is made of. Is it going to fall or is it going to fly? And there's this testing. What about how they test medicines uh, to see if it's, is it actually going to cure cancer? Is this actually going to cure this disease or that disease? And they put it to the test. You see, a trial is something difficult or hard to deal with, but it tests us. It shows us, are we going to sink or swim, in a sense? It's going to put our faith to the test. You see, for the readers, right, they were being persecuted, that they were uprooted from their homes and they were having to go find a home elsewhere, that they were being persecuted. And for them, this was the trial in their life. But for you and me, it looks looks like all different kinds of things. It was mentioned death, but there's so many other types of trials that we can go through. Galatians chapter 4, verse 13 says this. It says, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me. You see, this is Paul, and he's talking about a trial that he went through, and it was something of sickness. We don't know exactly what was wrong with Paul. We think maybe his eyesight was hindered in some way or another, but we're not sure. But this was a trial. This was a time of testing for Paul. In Acts 20, he talks about how he went through different trials while serving the Lord and different persecution, and it was hard. But it looks, right, it says various trials. It says when you fall into various trials. There's all different kinds, whether it's sickness, whether it's death, or whether it's something like divorce within your family. Maybe it's some type of accident uh, that happens with, uh, you know, a car or something like that. Maybe it's, uh, you you have to move, and so this is super difficult in this season because you don't want to leave all your friends, and this feels like a time of testing. You see, big or small it's not talking about how big they are, or how small they are. It just says when it happens, the variety of different things that will happen in life. He says that when you fall into, what does it mean to fall into something? It means this, it means to encounter a hazard. It means to come across or meet a hazardous or negative situation by accident. It's kind of like a pothole. You guys ever been driving with your parents and you hit, and it's like you, your car is going to absolutely explode within itself because you hit a pothole? right? That's not something intentional. Your parents, did they want to hit the pothole? No, right? They would do everything they could to swerve around it. But sometimes life just happens and you hit a pothole. It's not intentional, but it's something that happens. Even in in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, I don't know if you guys know the reference, but it's talking about uh, the the Samaritan, the good Samaritan who helped the person. It says this, it, it says, a certain man went down to Jerusalem to Jericho. And it says that he fell among the thieves. Did he want to be robbed? Was this his desire? No, of course. This is something that he felt. Of course not. This is something he fell into. And that's the same kind of word. This is something outside of your control. But the direction is simple. He says, when those potholes come, which they will come, he says, to count it all joy. And this sounds crazy. You mean when, when life gets hard, when someone dies, I should rejoice in that? Yeah, but not for the reason of the trial itself, but for the reason of what it's going to produce. You see, he says, count it. This means to consider as or to have an opinion about. You see, it doesn't say to change the reality of this situation, but it says, hey, change your perspective. He says, count it as joy. Joy is something that causes cheer and it's rejoicing. It's, though it seems like misfortune, 
that you and I can look at these things that happen to us and see the beneficial side of it. We can see how it can become fortunate for us. The situation doesn't change, and that's still hard. But what can come out of it can be something amazing, and this is how God works. And he says, but why, why should we consider these hard situations of life to be a reason to have joy? And that's where verse 3 comes in. We know the direction. The direction is that when those hard times come, that we're to be joyful about it. That there should, we should count it and consider it and think about it as something that God can do for good. But why? Why are we able to do that? In verse 3, we see the reason. We see the reason why. And it says, knowing that in the midst of it, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Knowing, it means to understand, that we would be able to get and to grasp at these different tests that come in to our life, that God is going to use that to produce something very good. And he says that, he says, the testing of your faith, this is to prove the, the genuineness of it. Is it fake or is it for real? And God uses these hard times to show yourself, are you really for the Lord? And he does it to increase and to show the genuineness of your faith. Just like the testing of the car or the, or the testing of the, the bird's uh, wings. But First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, it says something very similar. Look at the screen. It says, You have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, right, that's the trials, the testing that we're talking about, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God uses this to prove in our life, are we for him? Are we with him? Or when everything gets a little rocky, are we going to depart? And God is doing this to show he allows these things to happen in our life for something good to happen. But what do these trials test? It tests our faith. It tests our confidence in God that Think about what the first thing when something bad happens. What do people think? They look up and they say, why God? And they, they're devastated. And it, it tests our faith. It tests, it tests whether we're going to actually rely and depend upon the Lord. It tests our faith. But what does it produce? We know that it tests us, but what does the testing produce? What does it accomplish? It accomplishes a faith that is patient. You're like, I don't get it. What does that mean, a patient faith? It means a, a faith that can endure, a faith that can stand the test of time. You see, when it says patience, it's talking about a steadfast endurance, a perseverance, the power to withstand hardship. Have you guys ever seen those videos of the hydraulic press? You guys, ever, you guys know what I'm talking about? So the, yeah, so there's, there's this hydraulic press, meaning it, it can crush basically anything, right? And they put an apple there, or they put something that's like really hard, and they, and they put it in slow motion so that you can see the press, the hydraulic press coming down and smashing that thing. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this is the type of test, in a sense, that happens with us, and it shows us where our breaking point is, that it, it gives us a faith that can endure more stress, more hardship. Just the hydraulic press, in a sense, could press down harder and we'll be okay. You see, this, this word, it means it's the result of the ability to pass the breaking point and yet not break. And this is what God does through these things, that when other hardships come, that we'll be stronger, that our faith will be able to endure. 
Because things will get hard. There, there's all kinds of things that life likes to throw at us, even for the guy named Job. And later in James, in chapter 5, verse 11, uh, that he talks about Job. And he says, You have heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The word perseverance of Job, that's talking about this patient faith. That Do you think after everything that happened with Job, right, his family was killed, his health was taken away, his home was taken from him, but after that, God restored all those different things? Now, do you think if another test or another trial came in his life, do you think he would trust God with that? Yeah, because he had the experience to back it up. He saw God's faithfulness. It's awesome. He saw how compassionate and how merciful God really is. He experienced it firsthand. And Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says this. It says that, but we also, we glory in tribulations or trials, knowing that the tribulation or the trial, it produces perseverance and perseverance character. You see, the testing, it makes you better. That when it talks about character right there, that this perseverance produces character, that's talking about who you are, what kind of person you are. And the testing makes you more like Jesus. Yes, I'm not discounting how difficult the time must be, but we need to change our perspective. And he says, count it all joy, knowing that God is bringing forth this thing in your life. But this takes faith. It takes faith itself to be able to trust God in that moment. And maybe you haven't experienced that yet in life, that moment where you are desperate before him, or the moment of tears but you will. And so keep these things in your heart. But in that moment, you might not be able to see what's happening in your life. You might not be able to see God working. You only see the hardship that is in front of you, yet God is working in the midst. He is working on you, right? We know Romans 8, 28, but this is exactly what it applies to. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That even though on the outside it looks dim and it looks like how is this going to all work together, God is doing it. And if we love him and if we trust him with this, God will work this together for our good. This is a personal thing. The good that Paul is referring to is your good. That God will do a work in you through a situation outside of your control. It's awesome. This is something that we can take for ourselves. This is something that we can encourage others with because this is life. This is the reality, that death is a reality, that sickness is a reality, and that sometimes you have to move away from your your friends and your family. Sometimes you have to say goodbye to one another, and life gets difficult. Persecution is a reality. Getting made fun of at school is a reality, and those are hard times, but what are you going to do? Are you going to look to the Lord, or are you going to look to yourself? You see, we see the goal in verse four. We saw the direction in verse two. We saw the reason uh, how, why we can do this in verse three. But the goal is this. Look at verse four. It says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It says, let patience have its perfect work. You see, it's not that we should go and seek after trials. And it's like, oh, I want these bad things to happen to me so that I could get stronger faith. It's not that, but it's when they do happen, instead of asking why, we should just be saying, I trust you, Lord, that I know you're working. 
that I know there's a reason why. And I know that through this thing, you're going to work something good in my life because what's the goal? The goal is you. God has you in mind. Verse four says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's talking about a complete product uh, without defect or blemish. It's talking about a maturity, that you would have everything necessary. That's God's desire. And this is a work that God does. Philippians 1.6 is an awesome promise that we have from the Lord. And it says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But how does God do that? How does God work in our lives? Sometimes it's through trials. It's not all the time. There's different seasons of life. But when the trials come, know, trust God that he is working. And it's for your benefit. It's for your completion. It's for your perfection. You see, this is that process of what the Bible calls sanctification, that you're not done yet. You are not a finished product, that God is still working on you. But he, he wants you to lack nothing. But the reality is that we are unfinished. But God is working towards finishing us. You see, the kind of production in your life that God wants can only happen through this trial. You see, this is talking about a very specific thing, that there is something that nothing else can bring about in your life unless the trial happens, that God wants to give you a faith that can endure, that can stand the test of time, but it can only happen if he, if he allows something hard to happen that there's no other way to gain it. There's no other way to get it. And so this is why the Lord allows certain things to happen. And so we see the reality of this. We see that we are to trust him, that though we don't see, though we don't understand, that we are to trust him and just to count it joy, knowing that God is working. But we are also supposed to seek him. And so we saw that in these first three verses that we're supposed to trust him, but we're also supposed to seek him. Look at verse five with me. We'll read down to verse eight. Verse, verse five, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, remember this is in the context of trials. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. You see, God doesn't just say, just count it joy and trust me and just know that I'm going to do something good. And then he just steps away and leaves us like that. No, God says, come to me. That in the midst of it, I'm not just going to tell you that I'm going to work and you're not going to see it. No, he says, if you need help in that situation, if you need wisdom, he says, come to me. You see, look at the connection between verse 4 and verse 5. There's one word that is repeated. You guys know what it is? Look at verse 4 and 5. It starts with an L. Lack. He says that God's goal is that you'd be lacking nothing, but the reality is, is that you do lack something that we're not finished. And so we, we need him. But he says, if you lack something, he says, come to me. You see, the, the, that's the goal though, is that we would lack nothing, but God understands and he knows that we need him. And so he says, come to me. And he says that he'll give us wisdom. But what is wisdom? A wisdom is practical, moral, and spiritual insight given by God. It's knowing the right thing to do and the right thing to say at the right time. That's wisdom. 
is being able to understand and know this is the right thing to do, this is the right thing to say, and this is the exact right time to do it. You see, and it gets hard in life situations that come about, whatever it might be, that we need wisdom. How do we even deal with this? How do I go about comforting those around me? How do I even process this within my own mind? Lord, I need wisdom. That if you lack it, if you lack something, God says, ask. You need it? Talk to me. And this is through prayer, not knowing the right thing to do or the right thing to say at the right time, that we can come to God and he'll give us that. But why should we ask God? It's because God is the source of wisdom. He is where wisdom comes from. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That God is the only giver of wisdom. That true wisdom only comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so when we come to him, he's willing to give. He's wanting to give. You see, he's ready and he's willing and he's wanting to give you wisdom. There's a guy named uh, James Hardy Ropes, but he says this. He says, God's readiness to give, to give is a motive of prayer. I'm going to read it again. God's readiness to give is a motive of prayer. You see, we can come to God because we know what God is like. And we're going to read in verse 5. Uh, it says that it starts to describe what kind of giver that God is. And I want to encourage you guys, if you guys are ever reading the Bible on your own or you're ever hearing someone teach it, if the, the person or the scripture starts talking about who God is and what he is like, that's when you want to really pause. You want to pause and you really want to think about this is what God is like. This is his characteristic. It's something that is super important. And so we see that God is a giver, no doubt. But what kind of giver is he? Well, two different words. Look at verse five. He says that he gives to all liberally and without reproach. You might say liberal. Isn't that like one of those bad people? No, that's not, not necessarily true. Uh, they just believe some weird things, but liberally. So what is it talking about when it says that God gives liberally? It means that he gives generously and without reserve, that God is a generous giver. It's simple and straightforward. There's no catch In a sense, there's no hidden fees and taxes. I don't know if you guys have ever seen your parents buy something online, but there's always hidden fees and taxes. You know, you buy concert tickets, and then it's like, oh, but you have a $15 surcharge. You're like, oh my gosh, that's more than the ticket itself. This is crazy, right? And there's always those gimmicks. There's always the the hidden fees. You see, with God, though, when you come, he has no hidden fees and taxes, that when you come to him and you ask that he gives, and he gives without reserve meaning everything he has, he lays it out and it's accessible for you. Do you need wisdom? Do you need to know what to do in a situation? Do you need to know what to say in a situation? Go to God. He gives liberally. It means that there's no conditions. You don't have to sign a contract with God and say, and God doesn't lay it out and say, okay, I'll give you wisdom, but you got to sign on the dotted line because there's fine print here. You see, there's no conditions to God's giving. He says, you come to me in faith and you don't doubt. He says, I will give you generously. That's what the word liberally means. But then what does it mean when it says without reproach? This is awesome, guys. This means with no criticism, without insult or mocking that when you come to God and you ask for him for wisdom or for something that you need, that he gives it without insult. He gives it without judging you. He doesn't make you feel guilty for asking. The word is ungrudgingly. You're like, what is ungrudgingly? Well, if you guys remember last week, we talked about how that's how we're to give. 
that when we give to God, God asks us just to do one thing. He says, when you give, give it ungrudgingly, meaning without regret. Meaning when you put the tithe into the bag, don't put the dollar in and, and, and then immediately re- regret it, right? That's how God asks us to give. But he only asks us to give that way because that's how he gives. When he, gri- when he gives to us, he doesn't, he doesn't have regret behind it. He doesn't make us feel guilty and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you need wisdom again. No. So what does this describe? We get these two words, liberally and without reproach, meaning that you can come to God and he'll give you generously and he won't judge you about it. We see a God then who is ready, who is wanting, who is just waiting that you would come and ask for wisdom. He says, come to me. Life's hard. Things are interesting. Come to me. I will give you wisdom. He's ready and he's wanting. You see, this is how God gives. We get that and we we understand that now. But God also asks us that we are to ask in a certain way. Look at verse six. He says, but let him ask in faith. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. See, God's ready to give. Oh my gosh, you can't even believe how much God would like to give you the entire world that he wants, he wants to bless you. He wants you to have everything you need. But he, he asks us one thing, that when you come, will you believe what you're saying? When you come to me in prayer, will you actually believe the words that are coming out of your mouth? That we are to trust him, that this is how God gives, that when we come to him, that we should believe these two things, that God does give generously, that he does give without reproach, meaning we don't have to be nervous or scared to come to him, that there's a certain boldness here when it speaks of in faith, that when we come to God, we should be able to come with boldness. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 says this. It'll be up on the screen, but it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may ask for help in a time of need, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help when we need it. And there's this boldness that we can, in a sense, kick down the door of him and say, God, I need your help. I don't know what to do. This makes no sense. Now, of course, that's always with reverence, knowing that he is God, but God has opened the door for us so that we can come and he's ready and he's wanting. Why aren't we going? Why aren't we coming? Because sometimes within the midst of the situation, we're so flustered, we're so confused, we're so upset that we start to get our eyes completely on this situation instead of on him who is with us, on him that we can go to. You see, we're to come boldly in faith because we know his heart. We should never, ever be afraid to come to God. That if you ask in faith, though, then doubting will have no place. That when you come to God and you ask in faith, doubting is going to have no place. What is it talking about when it says doubting? It means to hesitate or to pause or to hold back with uncertainty. That when we pray to God, that there should be no hesitation saying, God, I don't know if you're open today. I don't see an open sign, but Lord, I don't know if you're you're away. I don't know if you're listening, but can I have some wisdom? You see, we're to come boldly. We're to say, God, I need wisdom. I need help. I need you, Lord. And there should be that wisdom. And maybe you don't have that faith. Well, Luke chapter 17, verse five, I love it. This is the apostles. It says, when we, it says, and the apostles said to the Lord, to Jesus, he says, increase our faith. It's an awesome little prayer. It's an awesome little request. And sometimes we don't have enough faith. Sometimes we do doubt who God is. In those moments that we should ask God, help me. Help me where I lack. 
You see, but we shouldn't hold back that when we ask with, for God for something, that there should be no hesitation, there should be no uncertainty, that we are to trust those things that are found in verse 5, the, the generous thing and the, how he gives without reproach. But do you guys ever try to ask your dad something? And typically, you always try to find the right time to ask dad something. You know, it's not right when he gets in the door from, from work. It's not right when he's leaving to go to work. That's not when you ask dad something, right? And you have to kind of find the certain times because sometimes your dad's in, you know, not such a good move, right? We get it. He's working all day or he's tired or you guys are, I don't know, being, being junior hires and so he's sick of it. But right, you try to find the right time to ask your dad or your mom for something. You're like, okay, you're playing out in your head, okay. Okay, he had his coffee, he had his, he had his donut. He's probably pretty happy now. I should go and ask him. You see, with God, there is no wrong time. It is always a right time to ask your Father in heaven. It is never a wrong time. But we see in verses 7 and 8, and we see the description of a doubter, though. So he says, ask in faith, but don't doubt. And he says, if you do doubt, though, you're going to be like a wave. He says, like a wave tossed, driven and tossed by the wind. Have you guys ever been in the ocean when the waves are crazy? Like I've been in the ocean, you know, when the waves make sense, there's like sets and it's like, okay, the wave goes and then the next one comes and it's like making sense and there's like a rhythm to it. But have you ever been in the ocean where it's like waves coming from every direction and you're like, this is insane. And you get barrel rolled and it's crazy. And there's like, there's no control to it. There's no rhythm. There's no rhyme. You see, that's like someone who doubts that you're driven back and forth and, and you're on the fence and you're neither here nor there, that what you are asking, you don't even believe what you're asking. That's a doubter. That when you come to God, we're to believe what we're saying. That we're to believe that God's hearing us, that God's going to answer. You see, he calls them double-minded. This means to have two minds in opposition of each other, saying, I should go and pray. God's not going to hear me. I should go and pray. Uh, God's not going to hear me. And there's these two minds going back and forth. God says, make it a single mind. Trust me. Trust me that I'm going to hear your, requ your request, that there is no time that God is closed. God is not going to the bathroom where God is not sleeping, that he's always here and ready and listening, whether it's at two in the morning or whether it's two in the afternoon. But what's the point? The point of talking about this doubter who's has these, is this double-minded man who has, it's like a wave in the sea and back and forth. What's the point? He says that he will receive nothing. Don't expect if you come to God and you don't believe really the words that you're saying, God's not going to answer. That God only answers the prayer of faith. That do you actually believe in him? Do you believe that he's on the other side in a sense hearing? Do you believe he's here and he cares about you? You see, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is our theme verse for camp. But when you come to God, you have to believe in him. You have to believe that when you come to him, he's going to reward you. That that's the way to please him. That's the way to get his ear in a sense. Just come believing. But what's the conclusion of this whole thing? It's an awesome passage. It's a passage of hope that we can come to when times do get hard. 
But John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus speaks of this, and he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. That in Christ, oh man, we can have peace. Even though the storm is swelling and things are crazy, that in God we can have peace. But in the world, he says, you will have tribulation. You will have a time of testing. Maybe it's not now, but it will come. But he says, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. See, maybe today you're saying, I don't understand why I have to listen to this message because everything is great in life. My parents are together. Life is good. Everything's solid. I'm getting good grades and nothing is bad in my life. Things will come. I promise you. And when they do come, come back to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and trust him. And see the reason why and remind yourself of what God is doing in the midst of it. And maybe for you right now, life is crazy. Maybe someone died. Maybe someone left. Maybe you have to move somewhere. Maybe everything at school is is wild and people are picking on you. And now you're the kid that everyone hates. Whatever it might be, whatever trial or time of testing it is, come to God and ask him for wisdom. Trust that he is doing something greater. You see, God desires our growth. He allows these trials and these hard situations. Don't forget, though, that he's going to work through them. That he's going to work in you a deeper faith and a deeper trust in him than ever before. You see, in those life situations, come to God and say, God, what, what do I do? What do I do? And he will give you that wisdom. You see, then you'll be able to know and say from experience that God is good all the time, and that all the time that God is good, that you won't just be able to point to a verse and say, look, no, God says that he gives generously, but you'll be able to point to a life situation and say, no, God showed up. God was generous to me, that he was amazing. And you can point not just to a verse, but to an experience. And that's what God does in our life. And then when life hits again, which it will, it's kind of like the ocean, it's wave after wave, they'll keep coming but you'll get stronger, that you won't doubt, that you'll know because you've seen in past experiences God working. And so your faith will grow patient. It will become immovable and steadfast and nothing will stop you in the Lord, that you will know that through it all, through every situation, through it all, that God has got you. This truly is, this is the Christian walk, guys. This is it. It's awesome. And we're, I'm so thankful that we have a God that we can come to, that we can ask for. And when life gets a little tricky, that he's always there for us. So God, we just come before you and we thank you just for the amazing truths that are in your word that we can pull from, that we can rely on. Lord, I, I confess, Lord, sometimes we do doubt. Sometimes we can't see your hand. And when we can't see you, our faith starts to wobble. Lord, we start being like that wave that's tossed to and fro, Lord, but we ask that you would help us, Lord, to become steadfast and to become immovable. Lord, that when those trials do come, Lord, that we would count it as joy. Lord, not because we're weird and we love when hard things happen, Lord, but because we know in the midst of them that you're producing in us a perseverance, that you're creating in us a better character. Lord, someone who looks more like you and less like the world. And so we ask in this time, Lord, that we have today, Lord, that you would just continue to speak to us. Lord, as we do this last song and just sing to you, 
Would you encourage our hearts? Would you comfort us? Would you remind us of the great truths in your word and who you are? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. Uh, We're going to close in one song of worship. Uh, If you guys need anything, I really want to encourage you. The leaders are here for you. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here for you guys. And so if life is maybe hit a pothole and it's getting tricky, uh, the Bible calls us not to do it alone, that we're to bear one another's burdens. And so uh, let's go to God. Let's ask him for that wisdom to know what to do in the right situation, what to say in the right way. And, and God will show up, no doubt. But don't, don't hold it in, all right? So I just want to encourage you guys, invite you. If, if you need prayer today for anything, for any reason, uh, come and find me. Come and find one of the leaders. Um, if everything is good and you don't need prayer for anything, you don't want prayer, cool. That's, that's worship, all right? We got one song left. What song are we doing? All right, overcome, all right, let's let's do it.